National Quality Hope, uh, the Geopolitical Pivot, which is the platform for foreign policy assessments and a new generation of national security pragmatism. I have with me a very good friend of mine, uh, Katie, um, who will essentially uh, help me and kind of discuss this new interesting dilemma, national security dilemma, um, that we are enduring as Americans. Um, and that is a gap between the American reality and American politics. Um, we've all seen presidential debates. Uh, well, I won't even call that a debate. Uh, much more of a screen test. Um, I'm not surprised to say that it has left a lot of us baffled about, well, is this the condition of American democracy? Is this where we are as a nation, as a political entity, um, as representatives of again, political transparency, political responsibility for the people? Uh, so with that being said, um, I would like for um, Katie to really introduce herself um, as well as to give us a little information about her, her background, academics, and what she has done um, as far as writing for this book. And so we can kind of use that to start off our discussion today. So Katie, you have the floor. Thank you so much, Samaj, for having me on today. Uh, I'm very, very thankful that you give me a platform to kind of talk a little bit more. Uh, my name is Katie Zakresky. This past May, I graduated from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock where I double majored in criminal justice and anthropology. Uh, towards the end of my junior year, I realized that I had a real passion for politics. I got involved with lobbying, with lobbying with a bunch of environmental groups, uh, with a bunch of local activist groups. Uh, and I was kind of unique because I was a young Republican involved in a lot of traditional leftist ideals, uh, either doing bipartisan work or doing transpartisan work. Because um, at the end of the day, I think it's more important president of Young Republicans uh, at my university, and I have since gone on to be the conservative state liaison for a lot of environmental groups and organizations like that. Um, since my graduation, uh, when I did a lot of research and criminal justice reform and things like that, uh, I'm currently a staff writer for a YPU group, which consists of About You Magazine, uh, Arkansas Money and Politics, and Mental Health Guide. So it was this past week, uh, after the debate, that I had an opportunity to write an opinion editorial for Arkansas Money and Politics uh, from the perspective of somebody who's just right or center. quote that really resonated with me that I feel that um, our viewers and listeners should actually kind of digest and make to go with it. Quote, good citizens put good people in office across the board. We elect good people with values that represent the people. Good citizens never let it reach a point where we guilt each other for voting by calling into question one's validity as an American. We only have ourselves to blame. And understanding that quote um, I 100% I, I, I do agree with you that we only have ourselves to blame, that we have, we've known that we've had social systemic problems um, left over over the past few centuries, um, and we've tried to make great strides in healing our societal wounds to come together as Americans um, to make this union a much better place. Uh, but what, what motivated you to kind of write those keywords and how does that um, resonate with you seeing where after the presidential debates we are seemingly much more divisive than ever before in history well it seems like and this has been ever since i've been 18 years old uh, i'm 22 now 
uh, I've seen time and time again. It seems like there's always a huge push to vote, go vote, go vote, go vote. But we don't tell people what qualities they should look for when choosing the person fit for office. So more often than not, you have people our age, uh, young people, who feel as though there's a major disconnect between them and the people running for office that represent them, namely the president, and then they just don't vote. Well, when you get mad about who's in your presidential category, you miss out on the opportunity to vote for local politicians who know you, who care about you, who uh, are running for your district, who are running for your city, who are running for your state. Uh, when you refuse to vote on categories like that, that are that important, you're not just screwing over the country, so to say, but you're screwing over your community. Um, and I think that either you're neglecting the right to vote for the right people or to research our candidates or to call out when a candidate is wrong, um, we've allowed it to get to this point as Americans. We've allowed for there to be people who don't represent us at all in office, people who don't understand what it's like to be an everyday American, to not be a billionaire or a billionaire. By having no faith in the system and by refusing play by the system's rules in this case, we've allowed for the system to stop representing us, if that makes sense. Um, so what I meant by that line was I, I get so angry when people are like, go vote, go vote, uh, go vote, but then we don't question the people that we're choosing to vote on. <laughs> like we, we kind of, we I guess, propel all the wrong people into the slots because we like being entertained by politics. We don't like being represented by politics. Uh, it's absolutely terrible. It's just so injurious to the information that we do with uh, of information and information. Uh, I think also what one of the interesting ones if we look at the dichotomy between Joe Biden and Donald Trump is that we have in this case students running for especially amongst the, the populace of certain parts of the populace in the United States who, as they say, uh, suck the fucking dick or sick and tired of the status quo, the status quo, which, you know, I completely understand. It may seem like it's just the same old policies that we've been getting for two, four, or even a thousand years and nothing's changed and we've been changed. But the problem is, uh, in terms of change, there is, there comes with this problem of ideological people who are voting in favor of Joe Biden simply because of the fact that they do not like Donald Trump. You have some people who voted for Donald Trump who did not approve of the fact that they did not like Hillary Clinton. Exactly. When it comes to that type of ideological agenda, it grows, unfortunately, that, that bubble of ignorance that a majority of Americans have. Uh, but we have that, that bubble of ignorance simply because of our geographical location that we don't we are not pressed essentially to know more about the world global security global politics because we are not directly pressured or threatened by any type of political adversary um, but now our problem is this, this goes back to John Quincy Adams where the founding fathers stated that the number one threat to the United States is not foreigners it's not foreign adversaries it's everyday americans when it comes to political institutions as you stated um there's a great book called how democracies die and it goes kind of along with your this quote where you stated you know we good people have the obligation to take responsibility i should say to put good people in office um when we're talking about donald trump and joe biden um how democracies die, and I kind of want to get your input on this, um, where he brought up the, he also brought up the notions of, example, George Wallace back in the 1960s, um, and how authoritarianism or anti-democratic principles is not the role of, per se, the American people, 
but it's the the role of political parties to act as the gatekeepers of our our form of democracy, our republic, our way of life. Um, can, do you kind of see the political American political parties as the gatekeeper, or do you see the American public per se as the the legitimate gatekeeper to preserve our democracy and our history? Well, I think that it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. You have to figure out which one caused the other mm-hmm. and which one has the power to stop the other. Mm-hmm. I do want to say thank you for bringing up how democracies die. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm a big fan. Um, I was actually uh, listening to a panel last night uh, discussing political polarization, and they, they also brought up how democracies die. Um, but to address your point, I think that if I had to guess, or at least make an educated assumption, I would say that it seems like it started with people being very gung-ho about the two-party system. And once that picked up speed, the two-party system became the gatekeepers to democracy. Just the other day, I was telling somebody that it seems like the two-party system is a monopoly. Everybody knows that it doesn't work, but nobody has enough faith to try to come up with a new innovative party that would undoubtedly be more satisfying than the two that we already have. Uh, Or it seems like the only time that Republicans and Democrats truly efficiently work together is when they shut out third parties. Because a lot of people, and we've seen this statistically since 2016, uh, third parties have probably become more popular than they've ever been before because people are so disenfranchised with the two primary choices. But, I mean, what, what, what is your other choice? I think that we as Americans have continued to let these two parties drive us to the belief that it's these two parties or it's no parties at all or it's absolute anarchy. And so instead of voting for a third party whenever we go to the polls every November uh, during election years, we always pick the lesser of the two evils instead of actually looking into bipartisan efforts, transpartisan efforts, or even just, as crazy as it might sound, starting a party that actually represents you, people like you, and your ideals. So I think that it's a little bit of both, and I think that you can't have one without the other in terms of people allowing this to happen and then the primary parties really feeding off that ideology. Also, uh, with that perception, uh, there may be, maybe possibly under uh, within American history, we may have continued to um, vote for parties under the administration. Um, I think this is my personal view that anything more than two parties may seem, and I, in the concept of kind of old world theory, page thirty-eight, in old world theory related to uh, or influenced by Europe. Right. Um, and that we've always been based on this notion of American exceptionalism and that our political processes to the conclusions of uh, those that work in experimentation that you know we should just see where it goes. What we see right, right now is where this is leading. That unfortunately with the expansion of technology and social media the the bowels of political extremism is starting to come into the mainstream on both sides and that in itself uh, when we reference into how democracies die that's a strong indication of how a functional democracy such as the United States could be essentially weakened to the point of not being able to function at full capacity um but I think also what, it, what that may also mean, and it kind of goes into not just John Quincy Adams, but also George Washington when they told us to steer away from foreign entanglements because we would not want foreign countries to become entangled in American politics. Um, so now kind of to go into that notion of the gap between American reality and American politics, what exactly um, are we illustrating here as far as this new American reality? What what could that consist of when we're looking at this growing polarization and essentially seemingly the depth 
of American moderates or the death of American uh, pragmatism? I think that, and I, I had this conversation uh, the other day with somebody from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette when I was talking about one of my uh, bipartisan groups that I'm involved in. But I think that because things are so tense right now in terms of polarization, you've got people who try to be centrist who are more or less shut out by the radical right and the radical left. Right. You've got people who are moderates on the right and the left who are either older and they're kind of a mix of ideals or they're, be or they're being told by younger voters on the left and the right that they're not strong enough in their ideals or that they're, quote, not a real Republican, not a real Democrat. I hear that a lot because I had liberal views and were conservative. I think that you've got, and this is both good and bad, you've got a lot of young people who are very, very, very passionate and who want to get things done. They're so determined to do it their way that they can't feasibly work together. So I think that for the coming, I'm going to say a few decades, this can mean a few things. This means that either the youth on the right and the left become so incredibly radical that they redo, I'm going to say, American politics and American political system as we know it, uh, and either decide that neither of these parties represent them because they're all old, rich, white people who, to be fair, just don't understand what it's like to have just graduated college and not be able to find a job because you're in the middle of the pandemic, right. or to come to terms with the fact that $1,200 isn't going to last for six months or something like that. Right. Uh, or you're going to see a whole lot of young people who push for less, I'm going to say, civil ways of bringing about change. I, I hate to say this. Mm -hmm. But I think within the next decade or so, we're going to see some kind, well, some type of revolution, some type of civil war, and you have a generation, our generation, that has more access to technology, more access to communication, more access to information and data gathering than any generation or any age group has ever had before. And they're going to have to start coming to terms with matching that with the political parties that we already have. Uh, I was talking with a coworker earlier today about just how huge of a gap there is between the common American and the person in Congress representing us. Right. Um, we were talking about the presidential election. I just got the notification that um, President Trump would be pushing off making any more decisions about um, stimulus checks from the pandemic until the next term. Why? Because we're going to go ahead with a Supreme Court nominee. Why aren't we going to give people money? I mean, if, if Trump was really slick, if Trump really understood the average American, oh my God, the man could literally buy the election right now. He could, he could say, if y'all vote for me and if I'm president, y'all will get a whole nother round of stimulus checks in the spring. And people would break their legs going to the polls to vote for Donald Trump. But because I, I don't even know if he wants to be president, if I'm being completely honest, he's shown no interest in swaying the undecided voter, because I can guarantee you that nobody who watched the debate who was undecided thought, you know what, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump, or you know what, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. They're probably just not going to vote now. So, I mean, if Trump really cared, if Trump genuinely wanted to win, he's had about 50 different ways to more or less buy the election sway the election, because he's the one in power, and Joe Biden's not. Right. I mean, I'm sure he had some fancy points during the debate about, well, Joe, you've been up here 50 years. If you wanted to do something, you'd have done it by now. Okay, yeah, but you're the president. Right. If you if you wanted to do something, you'd have done it by now, in right. theory. So, I mean, we've got two people running for president, and I'm not sure either of them want to be president. Right. I think that their parties have pushed them to seek the presidency because, and who knows, maybe both of these groups of people really genuinely love their voter base, really genuinely do love their supporters, might like their country. I don't know if it's love, right. but I think that you've got people who have been kind of pushed to the front in a last-ditch attempt to really garner their supporters' support. But, and I don't, I don't think they want to be there. 
mean, like, if you if you look at some of the debates, if you look at some of the ways that they interact either with each other or with their voters, I just, I don't see it. I don't see the zest. Right. Not like in 2016. Like, in 2016, people were riled up. Yep. Like, you had both <laughs> of the candidates who were like, it's all or nothing. Right. It's my voter base. Uh, y'all are deplorable. Well, y'all right. are nasty women. So, I mean, but there's, there's like, none of that this time around. I kind of think Trump wants to throw it and lose the election so that he can work on media. Because, I mean, they're both old. Like, like let's not kid ourselves. They don't, I don't even know if they have four years left. So, I'm not sure that they... We don't even know if they have four years Right, right. I, I, I'm a bit worried. <laughs> so, I mean, if I was them, if I was, what, in my mid to late 70s, I wouldn't want to spend another four years in the White House. Right. I mean, I'd be one. granted, I'm not a billionaire, but, I mean, I'd like to be spending time with my family or right. golfing or working on personal projects or just enjoying my twilight years. Right. But you have two literally old men more money than I'm ever going to see in my lifetime unless I rob a bank <laughs> trying to connect with the average American. I mean, and I mentioned this in my op-ed, they debated on the sanctity of suburbs. Right. Oh my god, what What do y'all think the average American's life is like? Like, So we're going to say that everybody lives in suburbs, and then we're going to give them $1,200 to live off of for right. seven months? But where... Why, why is there such a disconnect? Why is Congress continuing to get paid to delay stimulus checks for people who literally work four hours a week through, because of a pandemic that they could not help, that right. they could not prevent? Why do the people that we elect not care enough about their people to help them? That I guess that that is where a lot of my rage comes from whenever I write op-eds like these, whenever I read things like these. Whenever I follow congressmen and congresswomen and senators and politicians, at what point do you get elected and you say, okay, I'm no longer Katie Zakretsky, the Arkansan. I'm no longer Katie Zakretsky, the student or the journalist. I'm Katie Zakretsky, the politician, and I'm here to make money. Right. Like, I don't, like, it, I just don't understand how many IQ points are dropped upon being sworn in. I don't understand. I just, I just don't get it. Why, why would people? And this is a bit, I guess, of a tangent of a soapbox. I apologize. No, no, do not apologize because this is some of this is literally generally some of the raw emotions and thought that a lot of Americans are having right now. I mean, um, so I mean, and that's reassuring. I'd like to think that I'm not the only no, one. No, not. But why, why? And this is both parties. Right. Why am I as an American? Checking all the boxes of what I've been told by politicians is the right thing to do, right. and I am living paycheck to paycheck. I'll give you an example. I graduated, and I paid to take my own board here, valedictorian of my college. Congratulations. Thank you. The pandemic hit two months before I graduated. I came from an inner-city neighborhood. I busted my behind to get through high school, working a job ride to go to college. I wouldn't have gone to college if I hadn't gotten that full ride. I got valedictorian. I was student body president. I was a lobbyist. I was working three jobs. I was doing everything that the traditional Republican Party says that an American citizen should do. I quite literally pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I had my own apartment so I wouldn't be a financial burden to my family. I was paying my bills. I was doing everything right. I graduate. I'm limited to four hours a week at my retail job because hours are shortened. Mm-hmm. I'm unable to get any government assistance whatsoever because their website was completely overloaded by then. Because by then they had already been backlogged on two months worth of people filing for unemployment. Right. My parents were still paying for some of my bills, so they had claimed me on their tax returns so I didn't get a stimulus check. I literally lived off of all the savings that I had as a college student, so as you can imagine, this is not a lot, $40 a week for three months. I didn't get a dime of government assistance. I didn't get 
dime of unemployment. I get, I didn't get a dime of anything, any help whatsoever. And Congress never got laid off. Nope. Congress never took a pay cut. I had people in Congress, <laughs> literally from my party, the Republican Party, saying we've got people making too much money for doing nothing. I had to apply for a job as a dishwasher. I'm qualified. I'm valedictorian of my college. Please, I just need money. And got turned down. The there is no job. The fact that, that you had to plead. For real. Like, I, I literally walked, and another job that I ended up applying for was at Walgreens uh, for a shift cleaning position for an overnight position in a, in a rough area. I walked in, I did everything but got on my knees. This woman, please, please. I literally, I just need more than four hours a week so that I can pay my rent, so that I can keep my lights on, so that I can feed my pet, so that I can procure what I need to live. And I never heard anything back. I applied to over a hundred jobs during a three-month period. Never heard anything back. I will say that no job is beneath me. You are never beneath any job. Take that experience and the reaction of if that's somebody who tries to compare herself to our case group, the problem is is that she went through the, the initial stages of the petition process. She just found herself at like the greatest gulf, literally greatest gulf in the petition process. Small businesses You were exactly right. Uh, as soon as the pandemic hit, I was talking to one of my older governors about how well, people, should I go get a master's? Should I just keep going to school until this is over? And they were like, no, you've got enough schooling to be qualified for a job. And I was like, that is not correct. I was like, and let me tell you why. People my age are going to school until they're 40 so that they can do what? Make $13 an hour as a secretary? Because your generation, the generation above us, in order to save money, expedited all the jobs, or exported, if you will, all the jobs of all these other countries who were willing to pay people literally slave wages so that they could avoid paying people here a livable wage. Well, now you've got that next generation that they prepared the way for literally having to go to school for what, a third of their life so that they can compete with each other for slightly above the bare minimum? My generation's never going to own a house unless our parents die and we inherit it. Right. Why, why is it that the generations above us, through their mismanagement of politics, have set our generation up to fail and then they call us lazy? They blame it on us, and they're like, you know why people are like you are exactly why people like me need to run for office so that we can make lazy people out of you. Why no, you just quit. You literally just structured everything incorrectly, and now I can't get a job, and you're blaming me for it. So, I mean. The thing is that with these kind of situations, I like to see something that reminds me of that we also always talk to you about the trickle down effect of companies where we now understand that. These corporations are not going to adhere to our professional standards. They're not going to do X, Y, and Z for us. They're going to provide with billions, don't forget billions, trillions over the past few decades uh, in money to be dispersed across you know, our, our towns, our cities, our uh, communities, especially those in which there is not a good system of government uh, to provide yeah. for any form of foreign policy magazine evolution evolution has an article talking about um, this accumulation of wealth of um, corporations CEOs um, and at least the top tiers of American uh, wealthy ruling class and it's estimated that they're holding approximately 36 trillion dollars oh in, in cash gold 
and securities, um, as well as tangible assets such as real estate, art, and jewels. And let's take this into comparison. That Let's compare that to the U.S. federal tax revenue. The U.S. tax revenue is just slightly over $3 trillion a year. These people, these corporations, these CEOs, so on and so forth, these OFCs, they are estimated up to $36 trillion primarily in Switzerland, Hong Kong, Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands, the Bahamas, the Isle of Man, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, Ireland, Singapore, Panama, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, so on and so forth. This is a problem in our country. And I think that that is all that financial problem in itself, that $36 trillion also alludes to the to the growing disconnect between the American public, the American people, the average Joe, and our politicians. Um, primarily because you're not going to tell me that our politicians are not connected to that $36 trillion in assets that you can hear. On both sides, Democrats and Republicans. I think the problem, I don't mean the problem, um, the existential threat to our democracy is that we try to promote political, we try to vocally promote political transparency but at the same time, our politicians who we elect to represent us in our interests only represent their own interests, and that is to fill their pockets. Unfortunately, um, according to, if we're you know, going to be fully honest with human nature, the two tenets of human nature, let's say three, and the number one is survival, the second is self-interest, and the third is self-preservation. Uh, for politicians, it's not even about survival at that notion because, well, they're protected by the greatest military in the world. It's the second, it's self-interest. And with people, especially with the United States, the United States, starting off as a colony, was based on the notions of economic enterprise and ingenuity. Like even when they started their coordination with the Native Americans, it was all based off of trade, to understand the land, to know where the resources are, how to build up the, the footprint back in the 1600s. And now we've built institutions, uh, including our own political institutions, off of how can we get rich. And through rich and accumulations of wealth, then we have our prosperity, a.k.a. Nino's quoted that, that by a bootstrap. These people that have quote-unquote pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, they have detached themselves from the majority of American society that is the sole reason they are in the in the positions that they are in. For example, Jeff Bezos. He is only the richest man in the world because of the hard work and determination of his employees. But there is no indic because of that there is a detachment between him and the experiences, the struggles, the the conditions of the workers. Not to say, not to sound like a socialist. Um, I mean, you're right, though. I mean, <laughs> but it's, it there's that disconnect that once you become a politician, you become connected into that network. Unfortunately, you lose yourself. Why is it that at least 16% of Kentuckians are below the poverty rate, but yet Mitch McConnell is worth over $21 million? <laughs> oh, God. I mean, you, you've got, you got an excellent point, and I think that, I think that what it comes back to and this is not political, I think this is just an observation, if you right. will. People not having empathy. That's uh, people not remembering what it was like to be in worse shoes because they want to distance themselves from that. We'll, we'll take a few examples. This is just something I noticed the other day. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my friends who necessarily weren't the best students in school, right. uh, uh, who struggled for various reasons, mm -hmm. Uh, went on to be TAs, teacher's assistants, professor's assistants, uh, graduate assistants, and now they're quote-unquote hard-ass teachers. Yeah. Well, last I checked, you weren't the best student. <laughs> you, you always had a plethora of excuses. Right. So why is it now that when students give you excuses, you don't find them as legitimate, or you give them a hard time, or you're quick to fail them? Do you not remember what it was like literally six months ago to be a student? And I don't know if part of that is a lack of empathy or a lack of self-awareness or if it's just excitement to finally have power. 
think that's what that is. I think it's it's excitement to have the power, and and for some cases, knowing that if you go with the wishes of the people and not the wishes of the of the private interest, you can easily quickly be removed by the wealth of the private interest, so that you return to the condition of the public mind. I think that's part of the problem. Um, that. Also, I believe that can that fuels a lot of the the summer of the polarization that that's going on now. Uh, that people just do not feel that connection um, to their elected officials. While there are others, um, such as the Supreme Trump supporters, who feel completely a hundred percent aligned and identical to their president, and to those that support uh, you know Donald Trump. It, there's two different, two different things that are oddly happening. You have those that are aligned, or remaining aligned, uh, with the current president and what he represents and his administration, and then you have the immediate counterpunch to that that is so disconnected or so distanced by this establishment um, that their extremism is catalyzed because of that, that they so hate this administration, they so hate the political establishments that you said within these within this decade, one of these sides, depending on continued political development um, situations, they are going to they're going to push essentially some sort of a revolutionary uh, push or a some sort of political dilemma where we're going to have to sit down as a country and really ask ourselves, hold on, what are we doing? I mean, I suppose so. Let's discuss the hope. Uh, if we don't, you and I are going to reach a point here in 10 years, our generation is going to reach a point here in 10 years where we have no decent standard of living because we failed to address things that we should have been addressing some long time ago. Exactly. Now, uh, now I will say on the topic of the president, um, Back in 2016, when I was 18, I was probably the biggest Trump supporter around, mm-hmm. and it surprises a lot of people when I tell them about it now. Um, I was a huge Trump supporter. Now, part of that has something to do with me not having any experience or any exposure to uh, different viewpoints, mm-hmm. but I think that for a lot of people on the right, if, if I can just try to get into their heads for a moment, yeah. um, I think that a lot of people did and still do. Uh, love Donald Trump because mm-hmm. he wasn't part of the political establishment. Right. Uh, he couldn't be bought. He didn't need to dupe Americans and continue to make money. And he branded himself as the guy who was going to come in. Mm-hmm. He was going to end all of that. He was going to shake it up. He was going to do what should have been done a long time ago. And that tune really resounded with a lot of Americans who were fed up. The same old, same old. Right. Four years later, we've got a president who can't wear a mask, gets COVID, and calls his opponent's son a cocaine addict. That pissed me off. Yeah, and then his son calls the candidate's son a crackhead. Right. Like, I, and I ended up, I've been thinking about this a lot. When Mitt Romney voted to impeach Trump, mm-hmm. the only Republican. He caught so much flack for it. Yeah. So much. Because people were like, you didn't stand with the party. Mm-hmm. You didn't stand with the leader. Okay, well, that means that this is what the party's become. Right. That this means that the entire party is under speculation because we elected the wrong person. Right. And I've been thinking a lot about it. And I was initially mad at Mitt Romney right. for not standing with the Republican Party. But I would like to think if I was ever in that position mm-hmm. that I would make the same decision he did, even if it cost me my job. Right. Because to know that we have people who love their country and the people that they represent more than the person who's in office is reassuring that there are still people like that. Right. Absolutely. Because I think that if we don't have people like that, 
in our own party to pave the way for our leaders to be corrupt because we know we, that, that their party will not question them. So I think that, and to know that Trump kind of upholds the status quo of, well, if you're a real Republican, you'll vote for me. If you're a real Republican, you'll support me. You won't give in to the radical left. Um, so, I mean, I'd like to think that we as Republicans will take a hard – I guess the thing that sold me on the fact that – and I mean not to air my political <laughs> underwear here. But, I mean, when I walk into the voting booth, I'm not walking into the booth for Joe Biden, and I'm not walking into the booth for Donald Trump. I'm walking into the booth for my local politicians, for people running for mayor, for people running for senate for my state, for people running for congress for my state. For people who care about me, in theory, right. I know that, I mean, do you really think Donald John Trump cares about me, 24-year-old, fat, Catholic, queer, conservative woman? No, he doesn't care. Right. He, he, he just doesn't. And I feel like, and obviously Joe Biden doesn't either. I mean, right. I hope that a lot of Americans are kind of seeing this, but I, I had mentioned earlier, I listened to panel last night about polarization mm -hmm. and and I don't think the guy intentionally did this, the, the guy on the panel who was speaking mm -hmm. but he kind of talked about some of the hallmarks of political polarization that leads to the death of democracy uh. and some of the things that he had mentioned, I jotted them down because I was mortified um, he, some of the things he said are should be alarmed if norms are violated. Uh, leaders like this who are on the path to authoritarianism uh, transform obstacles of power like law enforcement and intelligence agencies into weapons instead of obstacles. Um, the would-be authoritarian seeks to rule their audience by proving their loyalty to them. So, I mean, and the more I jotted down, I was like, oh, God, I know who that sounds like. And I think that you've got you've got a lot of older folks right. who love Trump because he's billed himself as just like us, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. he, he stands for the common man. He stands for the people. He's here to drain the swamp and right the wrongs and he's going to fix it and he's going to lock them up and he's going to he's, he's not going to hold back. He's going to do what should have been done. And you've got uh, older Republicans who are like, hell yeah, it's about time.
that generation begins to die out, you're going to have a lot of people who are either entirely left because they're going to be so disenchanted with the antics of older conservatives, or you're going to have a new branch of conservatives like myself who have shifted considerably to the left that are willing to work with the, the real left, right. but by then the left will have shifted so far left right. that it will be impossible to work with them. That's, <laughs> so, that's the truth. Um, it, and that kind of brings us into, as you were talking about, that two different worlds, right? To the occult figure. see this these four indicators not just of uh, voting on the Democrat the Republic the Republican Party who are typically the the county uh, line which you know ironically or not ironically but you know not to say this year the Republican Party has not really established a new their new party strategy and it's essentially adhere to the word of president of Donald Trump. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, and I've been talking about this with some other friends who are political wonks, and they we've all more or less reached the same conclusion, love it or hate it, Republicans know how to vote when the time comes to pass things one way or another. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no factionalism in the party like you see uh, with the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. If Republicans like it or not, they will all vote between Mitch McConnell and Bernie Sanders, one thing that Joe Biden said that also kind of made me question when he called himself, I am the Democratic Party. That was concerning. No, you're not. You're not um, the Democratic Party. And that goes with his notion of, even, you know, Hillary Clinton tried to do the same thing in 2016, but, you know, based off these four principles, uh, these identification um, indicators, that the first one is a weak commitment to democratic rules and procedures, and this may not just go to, um, let's say, presidential candidates themselves. This could even adhere to the base, uh, the bases of these presidential candidates. So the first one is a weak commitment to democratic rules and procedures. Um, the second one is a denial of the legitimacy of one's opponent. So calling a criminal, subversive, and patriotic, a threat to national security, a threat to our way of life, a crackhead. Deplorable, um, and then that feeds into the third stage, which is to- the uh, toleration of encouragement for violence. Um, it's interesting though because other than George Wallace um, and Donald Trump, there has been in the past one hundred years there has been no major presidential candidate that has ever endorsed the usage of violence until two thousand sixteen, well two thousand fifteen with Donald Trump and George Wallace back in the sixties with his stand up for America um, presidential campaign in nineteen sixty eight, where by the way, uh, Wallace he had received a forty percent approval rating in the yeah. United States, which was a population of white nationalism ever. Um, but uh, interesting enough when we bring it back to the concept of the gap between American politics and reality. Um, ideally, I think that this started to really come up in the 1970s when we started to see, really, and then this became true with Ronald Reagan to a degree in the 80s, that starting in the 1970s, we came to realize that we, that a presidential candidate did not need a proper, like a better word, vetting of party establishment in order to acquire the presidential nomination for the party. So, granted, Reagan's wife was kind of well-connected politically, but you always had these notions of actors and actresses and civil rights leaders, even going back into the 50s and 40s and uh, 60s, where these people that were kind of on the edges of the political party would try to get in to the mainstream spotlight, but they couldn't because of party establishments and the minimal um, diversity of media outlets. That has completely changed now, where practically anybody can run 
no matter how extreme their views, and unfortunately cash in on some sort of political cadre or cabal or group or in-group or some type of political group in the United States that aligns with their identity to give them a following. That is bringing, as we kind of come to, and, and this gap between, honestly, America, the a withering American political legitimacy and this growth of a the true American reality that we're seeing with over 200,000 people dead now of COVID um, and a crumbling, really, well, not even crumbling, but a confusing uh, race for a vaccine with the executive branch getting in the way of doctors and scientists and other genuinely you know, expert individuals that are wanting to get our lives back to some sort of normal. This, this gap, I feel, is becoming not just in addition to uh, race relations, but this is becoming a true you know, national security problem where even our own political politicians are doing what's called collective abdication, which is transferring authority to these leaders that threaten our democratic principles. And not even just the leaders themselves, but it could be affiliate organizations. It could be opportunistic radicals um, that, you know, kind of like a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothing, where they appear to be your friend, but they're really not. I think that's what's what's really what's destroying our political institutions. Um, and to kind of get to our the last point in this, I want to look at the the international relations or affairs influence in this, which is now leaving the United States completely vulnerable to foreign manipulation, exploitation, and to to really expand our uh, our divisions and to undermine our democratic elections. Um, would you say that we're much more exposed now um, in the words of John Quincy Adams and Monroe and Madison and Washington and Jefferson Heeding uh, Washington's farewell address of, you know, trying to not stay, trying not to get involved in foreign entanglements where we do not want foreigners to become entangled in our own political affairs. Absolutely. We've let our economy completely crumble uh, because we couldn't foresee cutting off ties with the greatest economic superpower that we're in competition with. Mm -hmm. Um, So it literally took a few months for the entire world to completely fall apart too economically entangled with other countries. Uh, other company or other countries, pardon me, have been able to demonstrate a capability handling the pandemic a lot better than we have. And granted, a lot of that comes down to the American mentality about the individual and not the collective. Right. Um, we'll hope it was worth it. Right. Um, <laughs> so we we've got. I mean, sometimes I just get on other forms of social media, and some namely Reddit, and namely somebody, usually somebody's like, hey, uh, anybody other than America, what does America look like for the rest of the world right now? And somebody's like, a clown, a <laughs> not a leader. So, I mean, it's disgusting to think that, I mean, if, if you're truly a patriotic American, right. and I know that patriotism is something that Republicans have always kind of upheld in the light in a shaft of glory, coming down from the heavens to rain upon patriotism, mm-hmm. truly patriotic, then you must be disgusted to compare the America of 20 to 30 years ago, a globally renowned superpower mm-hmm. capable of literally managing the world, whether directly or indirectly, mm-hmm. to cough, cough, they won't let me into Walmart without a mask. Right. So, I mean, like, how, how do you reconcile these two things. How can you call America the greatest country on earth? Uh, everybody's scared of us. Uh, nobody would ever take advantage of our weakness because we don't have any. Mm-hmm. To well, we lead the world in death tolls, if I'm correct. Yes, we do. <laughs> um, our country has no economic grounding because we don't know how to vote for the right people. Um, and then we complain about 
those people and then we let them convince us that they are our saviors that we have to reelect them but we do this every year we Thank you. And 